Yes, good morning. Um, Yes, thankfully the series is coming to an end. eh? (laughs) I've had fun with it. A special welcome to all of those that are joining us from uh, at home online. Um, It's not too late to get in your car and come and join us for communion after the service. Um, But yeah, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at a series called Worlds Collide about pivotal moments when heaven and, and earth had dramatic encounters. And we've been doing that by looking at the story of Moses and um, and his life, not just his early life in Egypt, but also his time in Midian and the time then that he spent going back to Egypt to lead God's people out of slavery. And then last week we looked at um, their time in the wilderness. And so today is the day we're going to bring the series into land and we're going to finish it off. Sorry, am I good? Was that me? What did I do? Okay, all right. I'll just stand still. <laughs> um, I don't know who picked today's praise and worship songs. Where are our worship guys? I couldn't have picked a better, a better collection of songs because I was sitting there singing going, okay, well, that's, yep, that, that's the message today. Yep, there, there it is again. We can basically just keep singing that set of songs and you'll have the essence of what I want to bring across today. Um, but we've been looking at the life of Moses. And Moses is undoubtedly one of the greatest historical figures, not just within our Bible, but also for the, the, the Jewish faith. I mean, Lo, Moses is considered amongst, amongst the Jewish people to be the biggest, most important prophet. And through him, he brought the law. And with that law, which we looked at last week, we looked at the Ten Commandments, this was one of the closest encounters since, encounters since the Garden of Eden, where God and man were finally getting close to communing again. And um, in Exodus 33, it actually tells us, and I'd like to share it with you. This is Exodus 33, verse 7 to 11. It says, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away. And he called it the tent of meeting. And the tent of meeting was the very first earthly tabernacle, the very first earthly temple where God would physically come down and dwell in the temple among his people. While I was researching this, I saw such an amazing sort of point that was made. You know, every other religion is how people try to get to God's. Ours is the only one where we have a God who hungers after his people. Ours is the only one where we have a God, instead of us trying to go and dwell with him, he has spent the history of humankind trying to reconcile with us and come back to that communion where he can dwell with us. And that's exactly what we see happening in the story of Moses. So Exodus 33, uh, sorry. (coughs) Sorry. No, no, I don't need water. I just had a frog in my throat. Um, you'll remember that was one of the plagues, the frogs. So, listening. so Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. So you can imagine this. Moses is going out. It's a short way away from where the Israelite nation are camping. He's got this tent, which we're going to talk about in a moment. And when he leaves to go out to the tent, it means he's going out to commune with God. And 
all the people in the Israelite nation, which was over a million people, would then stand at the entrance to their tents and watch Moses walk off. And that's what they would do. They would stand and watch him go to the tent of meeting. And then the Bible tells us that they would watch a pillar of cloud come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their own tent. The Lord, listen to this, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. How? I don't think we quite understand what that means. Like nowadays, and we'll talk about what we have nowadays, we, we have this open, easy communion with God. But in those times, this was, this was the closest anyone had been to God since the Garden of Eden, since Adam and Eve, before the sin and before the fall of man, had walked with God face to face in the garden. It tells us that Moses would go and commune with God face to face in the tent of meeting. Now, I've got to add in here, because if you're reading the book of Exodus, it's going to look like there's a contradiction. Because straight after this, so after verse 11, goes on verse 12 and so on in Exodus 33, Moses then says to God, I want to see your face. And God says to him, no one can see my face and live. And so we go, but that's a, that's a complete contradiction there. There, the Bible's wrong. How can he commune with God face to face and God can speak with him face to face? And then he asks to see God's face and God says, no, if you see my face, you'll die. So that seems to be this apparent contradiction. But if you research it, the face-to-face meeting, think of it more as a heart-to-heart. It wasn't necessarily a physical. I mean, there was a cloud in there with Moses. There was a physical manifestation of God. But Moses was still not able to see the entire glory of God in all its power because the Bible tells us none can see the face of God and live because God cannot look on sin And those people that he looks on can then survive. So why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because the tent of meeting, and we have a photo if we've got it there. Have we got slides? Have the slides gone wonky? Oh, there we are. So the tent of meeting looked something like that. It was the early tabernacle. And this is where Moses would go out and he would commune with God. And I want to talk through a little bit about the instructions that God had given Moses in order for him and the people to worship him and to atone for their sins. And while we do that, I want to draw parallels with the life that we have today through the life of the death and the resurrection of Christ. And I want us to see just how how prolific it was that God would come down and commune with his people in this way and the way that he, deal, that he, that he communes with us today. So we've got a, a diagram there. I once again have my laser pointer. Can we go to the next slide? There we go. All right. So basically, God gave Moses some very specific instructions for how they had to assemble this tent. And this was the same model that was later used for the temple, the permanent temple that was built. But um, you'll see here, so it was all made of, of uh, it's tell, it tells us, in fact, it's amazing because when they describe the making of the tabernacle, it's all the Israelites come and make it of their free will. And the, the tabernacle of God was made sort of as a gift and the people brought things that, that belonged to them. They brought their gold, they brought their mirrors, they brought their, their cloths that had been dyed and they donated them. They offered them to God and his tabernacle was built from those offerings. And so you've got the outer edge, which is basically big curtains that were made. And then you've got the, well, this is called the most holy place, all right? 
But before we get there, there were a number of items that God instructed very specifically that Moses had to construct and instruct the people to make. And each of those items was a step towards communing with God. So each of those items was sort of a step in the process of atoning for sins. So the first one that you see here, and I'll go through them very, very quickly, is what's called the bronze altar. And the bronze altar was basically the furthest point that the ordinary people like you and I could go to. And the bronze altar, as the name suggests, is exactly the point where you would select a perfect lamb or a goat. You'd select a perfect animal, and it had to be an animal without blemish. It had to be one that was the very best of the best that you could get. And you would bring it to this altar, and the the priest on the bronze altar, the priest would kill the animal while you put your hand on the animal's head as a symbol for your sins going onto the animal. And so once the priest had, had done that, that was about the furthest that the people could go over here, the priest would then continue with the ritual on the, the Israelites' behalf. And so you would have this bronze altar here, so that's where the sacrifice would happen, and the priest would gather up the sacrificial blood that had now been spilt from the lamb or from the goat or from the animal that you'd brought as an offering. Um, and then he would go over to this section here, which was uh, basically a wash basin. It was called a, a mirror laver. And it was made, it was made of bronze, and it was made of mirrors that ladies had donated. And I'm not quite sure why that's significant, um, but, but the Bible specifically says it was made of these mirrors that the ladies had donated. And from this point on, the priest would do the work on your behalf because no ordinary person could go beyond this point. So you had the laver here, And the priest would wash in that and he would purify himself before going into this tent, which is called the most holy place, all right? It's called the the holy place. And within the holy place, there were three items. There was a big veil in front of you and there were three items before you got to the veil. And the first item was a golden lampstand, which stood just to the south, all right? And that lampstand was made from a single piece of gold that was hammered out in very specific details. And it wasn't like you see the modern day ones where there's candles on the top. It had oil lamps on the top. And part of the, the function of the lampstand was to bring light to the, to the holy place, was to bring light so that the priests, as they performed their rituals, would have light to see by. And they would, um, with that lampstand, part of the priest's job was to keep it permanently lit and to keep those, tr- the, the wicks of the lamps trimmed so that there would always be light in the holy place. Then there was, over here, you'll see there's a table. That's called the table of showbread. And on that table, every week, 12 loaves of bread would be put out that the priest and his sons would eat throughout the week. And then those 12 loaves of bread would be replaced again on the Sabbath. And the 12 loaves were symbolic of the 12 tribes of Judah, uh, excuse me, of, of Israel. So you had remember, loaves represented one of the 12, the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And it was symbolic of the covenant and the promises of God. So with those, that bread being laid out there, it was a reminder to the priests and the people that God was their provider, that he had made a promise to them, and that he was bringing them to his covenant, that he was bringing that promise to fulfillment. And then over here, you have the altar of incense. And there was a very, very, very specific type of incense that had to be burnt before God. It was a very special mix. And these were all instructions that God had given to Moses. So 
this was a very special type of incense that had to be burnt. In fact, the, the scripture tells us that at some point, some guy brought the wrong fire. In other words, he, he made the wrong mixture of incense and he died as a result of it. So this wasn't like, I don't know, you know, sometimes we take church for granted, like, oh, I just come to church. This was like a major event. This wasn't just, oh, I'm going to go and say hi to God. This was a major life-changing event to enter into this area. And then behind this veil, you can see they've cut a hole in it there. That wasn't really a hole. That's just for the, the illustrations point. But there's a heavy, heavy veil that separates the rest of the holy place from a small cubicle that was known as the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the physical place where the manifestation, where the physical presence of God would dwell. And God had instructed Moses to make a a box called the Ark of the Covenant. And we won't have time to go into all of the details, but just picture a gold box with two angels called cherubim over on top of the lid. There were certain hoops on the box because nobody was allowed to touch the box with their hands. Inside that box, inside the Ark of the Covenant, were three items. There were the the stone tablets that Moses had received the Ten Commandments on. There was the rod of Aaron, which had shown the power of God. So you had the law, you had the power, and then you had a a jar of manna. Remember the manna that we spoke about last week, the heavenly bread that would come down? They kept a jar of it in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of God's provision for his people. So you have the law, you have the power, and you have the provision of God in this symbolic box called the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark of the Covenant was kept behind a heavy veil, a very heavy veil that hung over there in the holy place so that it separated the holy place from the most holy of holies. And that holy of holies was where God lived among his people. And nobody could just enter the holy of holies. The holy of holies was only entered once a year by the high priest and Aaron was the first high priest, and his sons thereafter then took over that role. And it was they, they, there was a huge ritual. There was a lot of um, a lot of sort of cleansing and and sort of preparations that had to happen before anyone could enter into the holy of holies. And the priest would go into the holy of holies once a year with sacrificial blood, and he would sprinkle it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was on top of that gold box, and that was called the mercy seat, and that was an atonement for all the sins of the people. So he would do that symbolically as a way of of atoning for our sins or for the sins of the Israelites at the time. So they could bring their own offerings, which they did regularly, but once a year on the most holy of days in the Jewish calendar— um, called Yom Kippur, and I found out something. I was t- talking to my sister last night, and she went, but Charlotte, did you know? Because I was telling her, this is the series we're doing. This is how we're going to wrap it up. She was like, do you know it was Yom Kippur this week? Like this week now, um, the 5th of October. So the, the evening of, the, of Tuesday night, the 4th of October, to Wednesday night, the 5th of October, was the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. And I thought, well, we didn't plan the series around it, but I think it's pretty cool that it was now. Um, And Yom Kippur happened once a year. It was the Sabbath of Sabbath, the most holy day. It was called the Day of Atonement because this was the day that the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, would enter into God's very presence. There would be cloud around him so he couldn't see. He had to cover his face. He was barefoot. He had to cover his face with burning incense, so the smoke from burning incense. So he still wasn't able to look directly at the face of God. But he could enter in, he could sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and he could make atonement for the sins of the people. 
And you might ask yourself, well, why don't we still do that today? Something big has happened since those days to what we have today and how we celebrate today. You see, God revealed all the laws to Moses. God revealed himself to Moses. He gave Moses these laws. He gave him the instructions. He taught him how to build his tabernacle. But Moses was merely a man. I found a really cool, uh, a cool um, quote on him that I'd like to share with you. It says this, Moses himself is far from passive or reticent, yet he represents a prototype of the biblical hero whose greatness lies not in self-assertion, but in obedience to God. Moses is a compelling figure because he possesses human faults. He is passionate and he is impulsive, and ultimately Moses was merely a man, and a faulted man at that. And yet God chose him to reveal himself to him and to, and to teach Moses how to worship, how to make atonement for sins, and how to ultimately bring his people out of slavery and into the communion with God. But Moses was merely a forerunner. He was a foreshadower of something bigger and something more prolific that was still coming. And if you've been following the story of Moses, you may have seen parallels between the story of Moses and the the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the way we worship today. You see, Moses could lead the people out of physical slavery and he could lead them into a place in the desert where they could learn to worship God and where they could learn to atone for their sins But they would have to make that atonement regularly because they'd leave, they'd sin again, they'd come back, they'd have to atone. They'd leave, sin again, come back, and have to atone. And ultimately, although God was still dwelling among his people, there was still a separation between God and man. And there was a physical separation in the Holy of Holies. There was that veil. But ultimately, as close as God was, there still wasn't an for his people. There still wasn't the full communion that we'd had in the Garden of Eden. And God was working even then, 1,330 years before the the birth of Christ, he was working to, to bring a bigger picture, not just to the Israelite people, but to all his people. And in Hebrews 3, verse 1 to 6, we read this. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus whom we acknowledge as our apostle and our high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. So Moses was a servant in the house. Christ is a son over the house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly in our confidence and the hope in which we glory. You see, Christ came... So that we don't have to follow, can we go back to that picture quickly, that tabernacle? We don't have to follow that, follow that ritual to come into God's presence. Christ came because he gave 
Moses gave us the picture of what was coming, but Christ ultimately fulfilled the design of God in coming and being that perfect lamb for our sins. The Bible tells us there, it says, he was the high priest that went into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. And he didn't just sprinkle, in, in, Matthew, in Hebrews 9, it tells us he didn't just sprinkle sacrificial blood of a goat. He spread his own blood on the mercy seat. He spread his own blood as an atonement for our sins. Hebrews 9, verse 11 to 14 says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremoniously unclean sanctify them so they're outwardly clean. So basically the writer is saying, this stuff, that, that, that whole tabernacle was good. It gave you outward cleansing. And then he goes on to say, but how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. See, we, 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 we come here and we go, yeah, it's cool. We can, we can praise and worship. We can sing to God. We can, we can, you know, we can enter God's presence. It's a prayer. We love to pray like, God, have your presence with us. I don't think we quite understand what that means sometimes because the presence of God is so powerful and so glorious that anybody that has ever sinned and enters the presence of God will be struck immediately dead. And yet, we have a high priest who intercedes for us. We have Christ who instead of just performing some ritual in a tabernacle, and I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. It was important and there was good structure and we'll talk about that shortly. But instead of it just being a ritual like, okay, here we are, here's the atonement, you know, get out of jail free card, now I go back and I sin some more. The Bible tells us that Christ spread his own blood, that his own blood was the atonement for our sins. It wasn't some earthly offering. It was a heavenly offering to bring us back into full communion with God. We can speak about being in the presence of God today, not because of something great that we have done, but because of the one who died in the place where we should have been struck down. In... I just want to get to the right verse. This isn't on the screen. In John 1, verse 14 to 17, it says this. Actually, I want to go back. I want to go John 1, 1 to 5. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Then you go down to verse 14. It says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Just as the presence of God dwelt among the people that had been led out of slavery, Christ came and dwelt among us in a fleshly form. We have seen his glory. What was the thing that Moses said to God? Show me your glory. And God said to him, I can't show you my full glory. And in Exodus 33, he takes Moses and puts him in the cleft of a rock and covers him with his hand while the glory of God passes by. And yet the Bible tells us that now in our time, we have seen the glory of God. We've seen something that even Moses, as close as he was to God, was not able to see. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What do you think the point of Moses' entire story was? What was the point? Why didn't God just bring Jesus down then and sort things out then? You see, God allows, there's always a plan, there's always a picture, there's always a, a bigger design. And often we don't see it while we're in the wilderness or while we're in the slavery. But God's leading us somewhere. And with the story of Moses, we learn, I love those birds, with the story of Moses, we learn the law of God. We see something of the presence and the glory of God. And the Bible tells us repeatedly that the law came through Moses. God gave us a governance. He gave us a way to worship him. He explained to us in 613 laws why it is and what we must do and how we must atone for our sins. But ultimately, the Bible also tells us that we would always fall short if we were only being held to the standard of the law that Moses was given. In fact, in Romans, it tells us the law was brought so that trespass might increase. You see, the law was given so that we would understand what exactly we were up against. The law was given so that, because if you don't know what's wrong, you'll never know what you're doing wrong. So the law wasn't given as a way of going right. I expect you to tick all these boxes and then you can be right with God and, and then we can be reconciled and then you can come to heaven. Because no matter how hard we try, just living by the law, just living by the set of rules that God has given is not enough to reconcile us with God and for us to commune with him once more. The Bible tells us in Romans 7, it says the commandment that was... In Thank you. <laughs> It says in Romans again, therefore, one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, but the law makes us conscious of our sin. The law is the set of standards that we live up to that we always, always, always fall short of. So you've got the law on one side, you've got the presence of God on the other side, and you've got this gap that it is impossible for us as human beings to ever fill. And that is where our high priest comes in. You see, Christ came to atone for our sins. When he came and he was preaching in the temple, a lot of guys came and said, oh, great, you've come to do away with the law. You've come to get rid of the law. Like, you've come to kind of give us something big, bigger and better. And Christ says, he says, I haven't come to abolish the law. He says this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I haven't come to get rid of all those rituals and those laws and those commandments that I've given you. He says, I've come to fulfill them. I've come to close the gap. I've come to make that design complete. The plan that God had in place from the moment that Adam and Eve ate the apple, the moment that that sin entered this world, God's plan was already in motion to reconcile you and I to him. And not through the man of Moses. Moses shows us how we fall short. But through the person and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate high priest, the Bible tells us, if you go and you read the story of the crucifixion, that the moment that Christ died, what happened in the temple in the Holy of Holies? Can anyone remember? That veil that hung between 
the outer courts and the most holy place, that veil that separated the holy of holies, that veil that separated the presence of God from mankind was torn in half. Now, I don't think I told you this before, but that veil was a solid piece of fabric. You didn't enter the veil like you would like curtains on a stage. You didn't enter pushing through the middle. To enter, you had to go around the side because there was no gap. There was no break. And yet, the moment that Christ died, that veil was torn in half, not from bottom to top, like people standing on the sides pulling on it, but from top to bottom, which is the hand of God reaching down from heaven, pulling apart that separation forever. You see, the, the, the law shows us where we fall short. The grace of God has come to reconcile us and to close that gap. You'll remember that when I told you last week, when, when Moses came down the mountain the first time and he had those two tablets of stone and he found the Israelite people having built themselves a god, a golden calf, and they were worshiping and he threw the, the first stone tablets down and broke them, that I said there was a very difficult portion of scripture that then happened where the, the Levites, the priesthood, had to go and punish the people. And in so doing, 3,000 people were killed by the sword for the disobedience of the Israelites. It's very interesting to note that when Christ died, and he was then, after he resurrected, he came back to earth for 40 days, and then he ascended up to heaven. And he told the church, he told the people to go and wait in the upper room. And it was at that moment that we got the Lord, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, coming down and ascending on the people to live with them, that the Bible tells us that 3,000 people were saved in that moment. You see, God will always finish the story. He'll always complete the plan. You and I are still part of God's story. We are still part of his plan. We're going to um, share communion shortly, but before we do, if you'll indulge me for a little while, I'm going to say goodbye to the guys that are online after we've prayed. Um, I want to share a song with you that spoke to me, and I'm going to ask that you stand. You don't have to sing it. The words will be on the screen. You might know it. But this has been the song for the entirety of this series. The entire time that I've been prepping and preaching, I put on the headphones, and this is the song that plays. Because this spoke to me, and I, I pray that it would speak to you like, in a way, human beings can't be eloquent. We, we, we can't quite put into words exactly what God has done. And I pray that as you listen to this song and as we, we sing the words together, that you would open your heart to the story, not just of Moses, but the fulfillment of that story through the life, through the death, through the resurrection of Christ. The one who has brought us the one who has brought us home once and for all, the one who has once and for all brought us into the presence of God, that we don't have to sacrifice animals any longer. We don't have to work at, we do have to keep commandments. I mean, it's a good thing to keep certain rules and laws, but it's not through our own efforts, but through the efforts of Christ and his sacrifice that we are finally reconciled to God. So can we pray together? I'll pray for the guys that are online. I'll ask them to put the, the link in the comments for those that want to listen to the song. And then I'm going to ask that we, we spend a bit of time in worship. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you're a God who 
wants to be with us. You're a God who loves us in a sense that human beings cannot even understand that word. Father, you're a God who would move heaven and earth and who did to bring us home. Lord Jesus, may we never cease to worship you. May we never cease to to remember you. May we never cease, Lord, to be in awe of the gift that you have given to us and the reconciliation that we have and that we can be home with you. We thank you for this, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts now as we, as we just listen to the words of a song. And, Lord, that our spirits would commune with yours, even now. In Jesus' name, amen.